Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am Neil Pollock, the Editor-in-Chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and films and streaming TV and entertainment in general. This is being recorded live on Clubhouse, and we will later put it on Spotify and Apple Music and anywhere that delicious podcasts are consumed by a willing public. I'm beginning this week with a song from Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle, classic folk song from the 70s. We have a book that we reviewed this week that's sort of about parental regret and fathers and sons, and I felt like Cats in the Cradle is the best musical expression of that. And I actually have a little Harry Chapin story, little Harry Chapin story, to add to the discussion. When I went to summer camp when I was let's say 11 years old, my parents sent me to a Jewish summer camp. It was the only summer I went. I don't really like sleeping in large rooms with other people. And I don't, I don't really love outdoor activities other than hiking. Camp, camp was not for me. I, I couldn't get into it. But I do remember we were sitting around a fire one time. It was, when, uh, it was the summer that Harry Chapin died in a car accident at age 38. And the counselor came in and he's like, oh man, Harry Chapin just died. I had no idea who Harry Chapin was, but they played this song, and we all had to sing. You know, we had to sing at summer camp and be sentimental. And uh, I have a memory of that. I mean, you know, it wasn't tragic for me. It wasn't like David Lee Roth had died or something. But there you go. Cats in the Cradle. And now, on with the show. Maya Sinha is here. Hello, Maya. Hi, Neil. Hi. What do you What do you think about that choice of a song? It's fairly relevant to uh, to what you to what you reviewed. Uh, it's review- somewhat relevant. What I would say is that the author of the the book I reviewed, The Unbroken Thread, his name is Saraba Ramari, and I think what he's trying to do, among other things, is to head off at the pass a cat's in the cradle scenario where his son gets to be a grown up. His son only now is about four, so it's a little early to call it a failure. I think right. he's trying to front load you know, what he's able to teach his son and do for his son so that when the son is 20 or 25, uh, he feels like he's done a good job. And I think he has the, Sarab Amari has the anxiety a lot of parents feel today, like, oh crap, how am I going to raise this kid? Yeah. Wait, so so you're saying, because you, re- you reviewed this book and he's saying his son and his friends talk about how they're all going to be famous and they're going to be rich <laughs> and they're going to start businesses. This child is four? He's four, and maybe maybe mm-hmm. I didn't make it clear enough in the review, but this is his hypothetical. It's a really interesting oh. passage in the book where he has this little child and, and imagines this future for him where he's you know he's gotten out of an Ivy League school, all his friends are successful, they're upwardly mobile, the son's going to go work for a hedge fund or something. And, and what I say in the review is that for most professional class parents, this is the dream scenario. You have a smart, good-looking, successful son ready to go take on the world. But um, Saurabh Amari is not too pleased with that because he, he sees it as, you know, shallow and consumerist and not really up the path to the good life that he wants his son to lead. It's just so funny because my son, I, I wrote a, when my son was four, three or four, I wrote a, a memoir called Alternidad. Um, and <laughs> my goal was completely the opposite. Like I wanted my son to be as shallow as possible. I was looking to have a, <laughs> a cool kid. A cool kid who just was able to chill out and uh, and do fun things, um, and even though I myself, uh, you know, I guess I can write and I'm somewhat educated and have some culture. I, I, I that's not what I wanted. I wanted a rock and roll kid, <laughs> um, and uh, it's just so funny to you know whatever you want for your son is is, is probably not what you're going to get. They're going to be who they are, right? 
They are going to be who they are. But I would say, I mean, I, I assume that in your book, you also didn't want your son to be a cookie cutter conformist of everybody else. Like you wanted him to be different. You wanted him to be an individual and not just go with the flow. And so sure. I think in that way, Amari is coming from the same place as you. Like, yeah, I don't want my son to turn out like, you know, just a generic um, mirror of whatever the present values are and present trends are. I think he wants his son to be a cool kid in, in its own way. Right. Yeah. I, you know, in some ways you can't control that though. You know, the kids are going to, are, are going to, they're going to adapt to the current society. You know, I didn't think that my, you know, 18 years ago when my son was born, I didn't think that, you know, his major hobby was going to be trading cryptocurrency. You know, I, <laughs> there was no cryptocurrency in the year 2002 right. when he was born. I, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't anticipate that, uh, you know, Juice World, or, uh, or or whatever else he listens to, he's gonna be probably barge in right now and say, "Oh, listen to Juice World." But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I you can't you can't anticipate uh, exactly what's gonna come down the pike. You know, there was no there was no Snapchat, there was no TikTok. Right. <laughs> you know, so but I mean, so it's interesting. Obviously, Saurabh Armani is he's the edit he's the um, he's the editorial page editor of the New York Post, I believe. Right. That's right. Kind of a, yeah. Kind of a public intellectual, right? Yeah, I would say so. He, had, he comes from an interesting background, too. He grew up until he was 13. His family uh, were sort of intellectuals in Iran under a very sort of repressive system. Then they moved to the U.S. and they moved to Utah, of all places. Mm. So that's a little bit of a culture shock. And then yeah. Amari had kind of a meteoric rise through journalism. And by his 30s is, um, you know, the opinion editor at The New York Post. And so he's he's seen a lot. And he has a little bit of that outsider's perspective that immigrants sometimes have. They, they have a clearer picture sometimes of the culture than yeah. people who have been here the whole time. Right. Um, but it's, but he, is, he obviously has a classical education as well of some sort. Yeah, he does. And I think I think this book is his attempt to supplement the the education he expects his son to get. And I should say, I mean, it, it is written for his son, but obviously it's a book that's out there for the public. It's almost like, yeah, my son is four and doesn't know any of these things. And, and neither do a lot of other Americans. And, and this could help a lot of people tap into some of this ancient wisdom that is kind of unpopular and really just unknown in our culture at this point. What, what are some of the things, what are some of the uh, sources of ancient wisdom that he taps into? So um, what I see in the in the review is that um, the book is kind of like being at a TED conference with an all star lineup of presenters, but they span, you know, cultures and they span time. So so from the distant past, you get chapters about, you know, Confucius, Thomas Aquinas, the philosopher Seneca, and it takes you all the way up to the present to um, 20th, 20th century figures. You've got C.S. Lewis, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Hessel and uh, a man named Howard Thurman who I hadn't heard of before, but he was a black uh, intellectual in America. Mm. And he wrote a book that inspired Martin Luther King. And um, these are all just, it, it, the chapters are sort of mini biographies of these people, how they lived in their own cultures and times and how they thought through these sort of big questions that, um, that, that Amari poses in his book. So he talks about, you know, what does it mean to be a flourishing human being? You know, what, what truly makes us happy? What does it mean to be good? Should we even bother trying to be good? Or is life just about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain? And the idea of the book is that by, by looking back through history, we can learn from some key figures who wrestled with these questions and arrived at answers that can help us today in the fog and confusion of, you know, the 21st century. Right. Well, I mean, it sounds uh, very substantive and it, it sounds like an excellent, excellent book. I just have to, as a parent of an 18 year old kind of laugh, you know, I'm just, I'd be, I, I, I mean, you have teen, a teenager as well, right? I do. 
Yeah, does he is he he or she reading uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel? He is not, but you know, yeah. I do plan to give him this book. And there's one chapter, the one chapter I'm either going to remove with an exacto knife or somehow like obscure from him. There's a chapter mm-hmm. on sex that's pretty edgy, and mm-hmm. I found it a little frightening, even as a as a married woman in my 40s. And it would frighten uh-huh. the hell out of my son. So he doesn't yeah. he doesn't need to see that right now. Yeah. But the rest of it, I mean, um, I think he's up for. I think he's game. I think you know maybe the way I'm describing it, it sounds like you're reading a philosophy textbook. And it's kind of a slog, but but actually, Amari man, he's a journalist. You know, he's writing for for a popular audience, not an academic audience and it's pretty zippy reading because you're just sort of you know dropped into these lives of these people their actual lives it's a little bit gossipy in that way mm-hmm. in a good way in my view and you yeah. know how they thought what they did the things they they faced and then you're airlifted out and, and dumped into a different place and so it's a series of mini biographies that's that's quite um informative it sounds great i will say that i'm not going to give this book to my son because he won't read it, you know, unless it's uh, he, he just he just won't. He I don't I can't remember the last time he read a book. Maybe if I could slip it into like an episode of Legends of Tomorrow uh, on on Netflix, he might he might absorb some of the material. Right. Maybe if we could make the video game version. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You leveled uh, up every time you attained a level of ancient wisdom. That might be the way to do. Yeah, it. a level of ancient wisdom that involves decapitating someone. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that would be good. So no, I just, I just, you know, I have to laugh when uh, intellectuals try to uh, make create intelligent people. It often kind of backfires on them. So, uh, but that said, the Unbroken Thread does sound like a terrific book, and uh, your review uh, is terrific. And it's on Book and Film Globe, uh, which is at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I need to remind you all that uh, this is being recorded live on the Clubhouse app, and. Um, will later be uh, presented on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts and uh, anywhere else that people consume podcast content. So, um, you know, but it's all contained on this uh, website that uh, that my uh, contributed to. And it was so nice to have you back on the site. This is the second piece you've written for us, and I hope to have you back again soon. Oh, you too. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, all right. I'm going to call up to the stage Amanda Fortini. Hello. Hello, Neil. Amanda, how's it going? Amanda and I have a long history on Clubhouse. We uh, we co-hosted for every day for I think three and a half years or something like that. It felt like it. It was more like three and a half months. Yeah. Yeah, but it was like a show. It was a daily show uh, with some other uh, cynical uh, Gen X journalistic types. It was called People Who Suck. And uh, Amanda and I particularly were the co-host of People Who Suck Weekend Edition. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and we we so we have a quite a quite a, a rapport, a clubhouse rapport. Have you been back on the clubhouse since since then? Not much. Not, huh? not even once. This is <laughs> I, occasionally I go on and check and see what's happening on clubhouse, and it seems to be having a little bit of a renaissance in the last couple of weeks. But yeah, this is my first time back. Well, only welcome. For, only for you, Neil. Well, welcome. Uh, the not too much has changed except that people with Android phones can now uh, can now play. So it's it's expanded oh. the universe e- e- even more, and there's even more conversations about NFTs and uh, and and how to maximize your potential. Um, but not not via the unbroken thread, more like just via man- visual vision boards and whatnot. But uh, so we're not talking about that today. We are actually talking about a book that you reviewed for us. You know, Amanda Fortini is a writer and an editor and uh, an excellent uh, literary critic. And I managed to dragoon her into reviewing the new uh, Jhumpa Lahiri novel. And, yes. Uh, you're not a you're not a Jhumpa Lahiri uh, 
<laughs> you didn't. You hadn't read her before. I didn't. I, I hadn't. I hadn't read her. I read parts of um, the namesake, and I don't know. Somehow I didn't finish it, and I hadn't. No, I hadn't read her. I hadn't even read Interpreter of Maladies before reviewing this, but I did read it for this review. Um, I went back and read some of her old stuff, and then I read the new book because I'm a completist and a perfectionist. Yes. And um, yeah, I really liked her. I, I just, you know, I don't know. Somehow, you know, sometimes authors, they're. Very popular, and they're just you, you just haven't gotten to them. They're just not, they haven't been part of your, you know, I don't know. I didn't, I never read her before this. So, so there's, a lot of, there, there's a lot of books. You can't read them all. There's so a lot of books and little time. Yeah, yes. so I hadn't. Yes. So, so this new book is called The Whereabouts. Is that right? Just Whereabouts. No, whereabouts. The, yeah. not the Whereabouts. And, uh, you know, previously, Jhumpa Lahiri is kind of known for her uh, stories about, uh, like Indian immigrants in America, but then, uh, but but this, but then she moved to Italy, and kind of abandoned that theme. And this book is like is a is is a um, continue is a reflection of that. Yeah. So yeah, she wrote uh, about usually usually um, Bengali, you know, immigrants, Indian immigrants, and they would often be in a very specific milieu, which was, you know, kind of an academic setting in either like Cambridge, Massachusetts, or South Kingston, Rhode Island, which is where her parents immigrated to. And, you know, so not only the setting was specific in her books, but also she just wrote in a very kind of particular, precise, kind of rich way. You know, people would be described as like, she was the one woman I know in Interpreter of Malady, she described her as having a bun as tiny as a walnut. You know, it's just like this very miniaturist kind of writing. And then I guess in 2012, she decided to move to Italy, and we can talk about why, and she's she's written another book, or in other words, about her learning the Italian language, and then this book, she actually, whereabouts, she wrote in Italian and then translated herself. The other one was translated by someone else, and it wasn't a novel. It was a, a series of essays about, you know, her love for the Italian language and, and her, 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 you know, project of getting to learn, of learning it and getting to know it. So, so she wrote this book in Italian and then mm -hmm. trans translated it into English herself. So, uh, so, but and the way you describe it, it's a very um, sort of spare. Yeah, I should have said that. I mean, it's not unrealistic, but it's it's a major departure in style from her previous her, her previous fiction, which is why I had to go back and read it. It's about an unnamed woman in an unnamed Italian city, kind of going around, as I say in the review, sort of Flaneur style, you know, just going around, uh, you know, day, day to day in for a year of her life, and it's uh, separated by chapters that are um, given place names, like she's at the beautician, she's at the stationer, she's at the trattoria. I mean, the only indication that we have that she's in Italy is that she mentions a lot of piazzas. She's occasionally called Signora, and she mm -hmm. eats at a trattoria. Other than that, we don't know where she is. I mean, we're guessing she's in Rome, because that's where Jhumpa Lahiri went to live. But um, yeah, there's no indication of where she is, and no real proper names or really precise details of any kind um and yet we do get some memories um you know speaking of like parental uh you know tension like we were just talking about she you know has a kind of a strange relationship with from her mother i mean she talks to her but her mother annoys her she keeps her distance from her and her father's dead and we do get a little bit of tunneling back into those memories but that's really the only you know specificity that we get in this book it's strange it's a strange book interesting uh, or not uninteresting i guess i would say right i mean obviously you know jumpa lahiri is a uh, she's a you know a canonical writer in some ways like the mm -hmm. interpreter of maladies and the namesake 
were both uh, really groundbreaking books in terms of the subject matter they covered. And, you know, and she does, she had, and they both won many awards and she was, you know, widely praised. And then she, you know, but then she kind of dropped out in a way. Yeah. This is is like a dropout book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, she, I mean, there's, she gave some, I guess the, the, the the other book that she did um, about learning Italian, you know, would be sort of her dropout book. In other words, it's called. And, um, but yeah, both of them are, I guess. And she wrote an essay for the Guardian in which she talked about like how the English language felt like a kind of you know uh, burden or cage for her um, because she felt trapped between two cultures. You know, yeah. the Bengali culture of her parents, which was her first language, and then. Um, you know, English, which she learned, but she couldn't really communicate with her parents in because her mother steadfastly refused to assimilate. She said, you know, that was her way of maintaining her identity was to, you know, just completely maintain her Indian identity and language and everything. So she always felt trapped between these two cultures. And so Italian was a kind of learning Italian, you know, when she, when she decided to move to Italy, for the year before, and then once she moved, she only read and wrote in Italian. She stopped reading English entirely. So in this essay in The Guardian, she talks about how freeing it was for her to sort of just leave English in her past. And, you know, I mean, which is I'm, kind of an interesting choice for a writer so celebrated, you know, in English. Yeah, I mean, that's all, I mean, that's a fascinating story. I just wonder, like, you know, what's the result, <laughs> you know? What, what do we, what do we, so it sounds kind of like we're, it's kind of like, sort of got a little vague element of Italo Calvino in there. And it also reminds me of there is a, 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 a issue grow novel like years ago called the unconsoled in which this guy wanders about in kind of an unnamed European city. That was a very mm-hmm. long book. Too mm-hmm. long. And I know you haven't read it, but no, I haven't read that because <laughs> We talked about it, but, uh, but uh, that's a very long book. And But this sounds like, I'm just kind of like, what are we doing here? What are we, why are we reading this? Right, right. I know. I mean, it is a little bit of like, this is a, this is a curiosity maybe for people who really like Jhumpa Lahiri. But if I were going to recommend to someone like, I I want to read a Jhumpa Lahiri book, I would say, go read Interpreter of Maladies or The Namesake. Like they're just so much richer um, and so much fuller than this book. Like this book is really kind of feels like, uh, we have infrastructure, but we haven't like put, you know, on the paint painting of the house or any of the sort of construction materials or any furniture or anything. You know, it just feels really, really bare bones to me. And um, I didn't dislike it, but I also, like I said, it's kind of like a just like a curiosity or an object of interest or something. It's not really a, the most satisfying reading experience. It does. Yeah. It does also, you were talking about other books that it reminds you of. Um, it's very similar to the to the most recent Rachel Cusk book, mm-hmm. um, Second Second Place, I think it's called. Okay. And then um, the last two Sigrid Nunes, Nunes books, um, they're also middle-aged women kind of wandering through, elliptically kind of, you know, going through their lives, um, told is, sort of episodically. Is, is that a genre, sort of the, uh, the sort of vague elliptical... Uh, middle-aged you know, woman midlife crisis novel i mean i, I guess, guess so. we, i guess we've just named a genre right here um yeah. because i don't i don't know that it is one um i mean the the, the middle-aged female protagonist is fairly rare in fiction because mm-hmm. um you know fiction is about 
drama and things happening and you know like the big questions of life um right because middle-aged women don't face those well you you know marriage children family that's a lot of that is already decided and i guess no middle-aged women do face those but i guess we're talking about this these are single middle-aged female protagonists or partnered off but no children you know so that i think is a rarity in fiction which we could do a whole podcast about honestly uh we could (laughs) <laughs> we could. I don't know if we will. We might. Let's table I could. That. Yeah. Let's table that. Well, I, I, Amanda, Amanda, you're, it's a you know great review. I hope to uh, hope to uh, con you into writing for us again in the future because uh, you, you are you are my uh, my uh, my podcasting co-host partner and and just a, such a, a terrific critic. And I'm so I'm happy to have you um, writing for the Book and Film Globe, uh, the greatest culture site in all the world. So my pleasure. Uh, the way the, the the podcast works is we present um, literature as sort of an appetizer and then your your entree, so to speak, your your main course. I'm I'm in the mousse bouche all the time. Your main course is uh, film and then for dessert, uh, of course, you have uh, TV. So uh, it's time to move along. Uh, again, we're recording this on Clubhouse and we are going to later uh, play it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and uh, I don't know fm.podcast.com.net.edu uh, or wherever else you can listen to podcasts. And uh, we're going to move along to the movies. It's movie time. Movies are back. Pablo Gallaga is here. Hello, Pablo. Hey, How's it going? How's it going? Good, good. Pablo has been writing uh, film reviews and criticism for us for several years now. And uh, you had uh, you had two articles this week, too. Big, big week for you. My God. I mean, I, how are you celebrating that? We wrote a, a piece about uh, the popularity of this anime uh, film called Demon Slayer Mugen Train. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? Mugen? Mugen? I, I say Mugen. I think it Mugen. could be Mugen. I'm not yeah. sure exactly. Well, let's call the whole thing off. So, um, so you, so you, uh, so Demon Slayer has been a huge. Um, I, I, it, I, we didn't review it initially because I, I was like, who knew what, what, what it was going to be coming? It's been this huge hit world, worldwide. What is this thing? You know, what's interesting, um, when I went back to review uh, Monster Hunter a few months back, uh, kind of still before the pandemic and the, uh, you know, when the vaccines were hitting, uh, there was a trailer for this. And it was one of the first times that I've seen an anime trailer in the theaters. Mm. Uh, I mean, in, in a long, long time. So I, I kind of, I wasn't familiar with it at the time. And I figured it must be something kind of big if you're seeing that at the draft house. So um, The Alamo I draft think, house. The Alamo draft house in Austin. Right, Texas. yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I I think what's happening with Demon Slayer, it, it's a good series. It, it's fine. Uh, it follows a very familiar formula that you would see with pretty much any anime. It's a, a young boy out for revenge type story. But I think it's the shiny new thing. Um, if you look at the timing of what's going on in the anime world, uh, Attack on Titan was kind of the big thing over the last few years. Uh, that manga just came to an end. Uh, so did the series. I think they're talking about maybe doing another few episodes uh, next year, but that was kind of that that thing that uh, I mentioned in the article. If you went into Hot Topic, you would see a lot of merchandise for that show. Yeah, uh, My Hero Academia is the other big one, but that's been going since 2014. So this is a series that just kind of burst onto the scene in 2019. There's only been one season, and there's another season coming, but this film bridges the gap, like the events between those two seasons. So, uh, I mean, I really enjoyed the film. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. 
it's kind of got all the tropes that you expect from anime. You've got the the weird friend who's very awkward. You've got the the cute sister who's actually a really good fighter. It's the type of stuff you expect from from anime. Right, right. It sounds like it, it follows in some ways follows the formula. There's lot, lots of uh, flashy sword play. Maybe yeah, they, exactly. Uh, it's very accessible too. Like I, I wasn't too familiar with it. I had only kind of taken it in through osmosis because my fiance really loves the series. So I went and saw the film, and I was like, "Oh, this is really easy to understand what's going on." Like even are there, without are, familiar are, are, with it. Are there freeze frame shots where it seems like lots of sweat is popping off of the of the characters' heads? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's some of those freeze frames and like the the comedic kind of ones too, where Big you know the, they're yeah. off model faces suddenly, yeah. and it's just kind of kooky. Uh, yeah, it's um, a lot of really weird, funny weird, stuff. Are there weird, scary morphing scenes? So the creature designs in this show are really good. Uh, right. you know, obviously, it's about demons, so you've got these kind of tragic backstories for each one. Uh, they just have really cool designs, of, like multiple eyes, and mm. just their their limbs do different things. So it is, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily for kids because of that, but I think kids could still kind of... if. You know, they don't get scared easily. They could enjoy this show. It's nothing with any, like, hypersexualization or anything like that. More importantly, though, it, as you put a point out in your piece for us, this marks an arrival uh, in some ways. Uh, like, uh, the, main, the absolute mainstreaming of anime as, as a huge money-making art form in the West. I think we're finally there. And I don't want to have tunnel vision and say that, you know, millennials and Gen Z have done this. I mean, this goes back to Gen X and going back to the 60s and 70s as well. Uh, we've always had kind of a fixation in the West on anime and every generation kind of has that one film that kind of, uh, you know, gets latched onto. Um, sure. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I went, you know, I went to see Akira uh, at the movies. That's the one. Like the <laughs> When it came out, I don't remember what it was. It was the late 80s, early 90s. I don't remember exactly when. Uh, but I 88. saw it 88. I saw it at, in, I was living in Chicago, and I saw it at the Music Box Theater, which is the, the sort of vintage indie art house in Chicago. It wasn't like something that was like, it wasn't competing at the multiplex, you know, at that point. Like, anime was still an indie still underground. It was an yeah. indie thing. It wasn't quite underground. But yeah, it was like, it was, it was for, you know, it was like for, a certain kind of person and and now it's for everyone it's very mainstream well even before that you have things like belladonna of sadness in the 70s and that's very underground and kind of taboo and it was making its way over here uh, i think akira was the one that really burst on the scene and then when you go through the 90s you've got miyasaki stuff you've got um more recently things like your name and weathering with you well and this is one yeah, yeah pokemon. pokemon is more of the kid-friendly thing that right. started off as a video game um you know, even Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball Z. I mean, all those are pretty much household names now. Sure. Well, so that's very interesting. And you and you and you you make uh, you you point it out in, in the piece. And uh, so I guess uh, we'll just uh, have to keep covering anime. Maybe, maybe I don't really want to do it myself. So hopefully you 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 you'll continue to have a taste for it. Gladly. <laughs> yeah. So um, meanwhile, uh, you went to a movie last night. You went to see A Quiet Place Part Two. Yeah, and that was interesting for me because I really disliked the first one. And I don't mm -hmm. think I've ever had an experience where I didn't like the first movie, but uh, the second one won me over. Uh, it was just very action-packed, a lot of fun. Um, and I think it kind of coincides with that return to the movies, wanting to have this bigger experience. And it just it felt that way. It really did. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh, 
Well, I want to talk about the return of the. We can talk about the film too, but I want to talk about this return to the movie. So you went to the probably went to the Alamo Draft House. I'm guessing you could have gone somewhere yes. else, but the Alamo Draft House. We, we live in Austin. Pablo and I live in Austin, and you know. The Alamo is really the place to go see a movie here, unless like you're going to the Austin Film Society or something. It's much more fun than going to a regular theater. They have previews that that like highlight themes from the movie, and they make sure you don't talk and you can't be on your phone. It's just much better, and there's food. Um, what was it like in the theater? Was it crowded? Were was it raucous? Were were, were people in, you know because we're getting to post pandemic period here. Movies are back. I feel like it was at capacity considering that the Alamo draft house is still doing distancing. So I think all the seats that were available were taken. Uh, I had to sit in the front row if that's any indication. Yeah. So yeah, I think movies are back. I really do in the theater. Yeah. I mean, and you've been, you've been back at movies for a bit now as you've been, I know you've been going for the last couple of months and I, you know, as, as I've crankily pointed out over and over again, I never stopped going to the movies. I went to the movies like in May of 2020. Um, but, but it's nice to see it back. And I feel like more than even Kong versus Godzilla, which I saw on an IMAX screen and which was a tremendously ridiculous good time. Sounds like this is the movie. This is the weekend Memorial day weekend. This is when movies are back. I think so. I feel like Godzilla and King Kong was my personal official return to the theater where I felt like, okay, I'm I'm going to the movies from now on. Yeah. But yeah, this is the one where I think the timing of it, more and more people are just like, okay, I'm back at the movies now. All right. So A Quiet Place Part 2, what I, what, what sounds interesting to me about it is that it, it is a, um, it's a sequel to the first Quiet Place, but there's also like kind of some prequel action and there's like some, there, it shows you how this weird alien invasion actually started. Doesn't pick yeah, up I didn't expect that at all. That's that's the cold open for this one. You get a flashback that does more of an explainer because the first film doesn't explain at all what's going on. Like you just know that there's monsters and everyone's having to survive it, and there's no sort of backstory for whatever whatsoever. So this time they they explained it, and there had been a lot of interviews since the last film with Krasinski asking, you know, are you going to explain this? He's like, oh yeah, they're definitely aliens. You know, it's we're going to explain it, and that's what they do in this one. John Krasinski, uh, the director and star of the first movie, and of course uh, Jim from The Office. No longer, no longer is Jim from The Office. No longer funny. He's very serious in these two films. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, yeah. So, okay. I mean, there's not much more to say. It sounds like it's a lot of fun and uh, and appropriately tense. Yeah. Go check it out in the theaters. All right. So. Uh, Thank you, Pablo. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, Stephen Garrett is here as well. I'm here. Here he is. Button. I'm here, though. I'm here. Yeah, I hear you. He presses the button. We're we're live on Clubhouse. Uh, you're you're being recorded for posterity um, and for dexterity, and uh, <laughs> and um, this is also going to be aired on uh, many different podcast uh, sites. Places where you hear podcasts. This is the most popular. This is the was the number one podcast in the world last week. I didn't know if you knew that. Nice. Yeah. No <laughs> surprise to me. Yeah. My number one podcast. Yeah, it is. It is. It's the only one I do. So, um, all right. So, Stephen is our chief film critic. Has been writing. Uh, I don't know. You've written. I think seventy five thousand articles for us. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> something along those lines. And th- this this week, I've actually not published this review yet because it came it came in uh, a, li- a little late this morning. Came in hot. Sorry about that. Came in hot. I'll pu- I'll, I'll put it up this afternoon. But uh, you you went to you you didn't go to see you you w- watched Cruella. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the prequel to 101 Dalmatians that apparently we needed. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm not too sure if it's the prequel to the live action one or to the animated one. It's really neither. It's kind of a reimagining and a remix, the way that Disney likes to do that. It's almost yeah. this feverish retelling that has some elements that are familiar, and then they throw in new stuff. But essentially, she's not evil. That's the big takeaway. She's just misunderstood. Cruella DeVille, played by yeah. Emma Live action. Cruella DeVille, one of the most evil characters in cartoon history. Not evil, apparently. No. No. Oh. No, she's a victim. She's a victim, oh, and we need course. to be sympathetic to her, and mm. everything makes sense. But she doesn't have this fur fetish, which kind of was so endearing in the uh, other two films. You know, especially the way Glenn Close kind of made it almost sexual, her, yeah. her frenzied need for fur. You know, they barely talk about fur in this one, so it's very PETA-approved, I guess. So it's more like a... Um, I mean, I'll, I got to be honest with you, Stephen. I, I would, I, I, you, you would have to pay me extra money, extra money on top of my, <laughs> my massive book and film globe editor's salary to see Cruella. Like, I can, I can deal with seeing a Quiet Place Part Two. You know, right? You know, I, I like thing movies where aliens crash through the ceilings and stuff. But like, I, I, I just. I don't understand why you have to reimagine Cruella DeVille. It just it just doesn't make sense to me. I'm not too sure. I mean, I guess everybody loves Cruella DeVille's name first and foremost. She has that great theme song, which they kind of do. They have know, that kind of, uh, I think like I think it's in the end credits. The way they do Spider Man at the end of you know Sam Raimi's Spider Man. They had the end credit, you know, original '60s song but uh i i think they just love the character she's outrageous and she's a fashionista and she looks fabulous so let's make uh a movie that could potentially turn into a franchise you know it definitely ends in a way that makes you think okay now she's assembled her own kind of weird avengers group and they're going to go out and have misadventures but i don't know who the villain's going to be i mean they do this neat trick where how do you gain sympathy for a villain will you put in somebody he's even more evil and yeah. then suddenly Cruella's not so bad. And Emma Thompson fills that role, and she is truly a villainess through and through. Although I'm sure in 40 years there'll be a reboot where she's actually the one who's misunderstood. But right. for now, she's the evil one. She's the bad one. And Emma deserves our sympathy I, and love, you know. I, I, but I, I, I'm being snarky. I, to your point, actually, I love fashion movies. I think they're uh, ridiculous and fascinating and weird. And I love the kind of people who are you know, take fashion so seriously. And, and I do love how outrageous some costumes can be. So I think the movie definitely delivers that way, you know, and, and Craig Gillespie directed this and his last movie was I, Tanya, which I thought was completely delightful and fun and had a sharper edge and was a lot meaner. Actually, this movie's not mean, you know, at all, but there is some fun, spiky, um, you know, kind of late seventies post-mod proto-punk, costumes and posturing mm -hmm. that are kind of fun to revisit. You know, especially Emma Thompson and Emma Stone, the two of them together. I mean, they're both great actors and are just great personalities. And they are clearly just chewing the carpet, you know, chewing the scenery, having a lot of fun. Um, so it's, it's mostly harmless, kind of annoying. But if you let yourself enjoy it, it's completely enjoyable. So, you know. And it's sort of the B-side to this return to the movies weekend with uh, Quiet Place is going to win the box office. And this is kind of like your family-friendly alternative. It's very family-friendly. Yes, exactly. All right. exactly. Well, I, Nothing I'm, cruel about it. I'm just going to bust in here. I don't know if you remember uh, that The Replacements did a covers version of Cruella de Vil, oh. song. I know, that's awesome. Yeah, it was on the Stay Awake soundtrack. Uh, there, there was a sort of... Oh, right! 
Tom Waits Bonnie Raitt. Pink Elephants on Parade. Was up yeah, that, that was great. Bonnie Raitt did Baby Mine from uh, yes. uh, Dumbo, which is beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I got to go back and dig well, Why not check that song out? Here is The Replacement singing Cruella de Vil from the Stay Awake soundtrack from, I believe it's from the mid-90s. It's amazing that The Replacements got this done at all. It's amazing they ever got anything done in the studio. But this is that song. It's the most rockin', the best version of the song available. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. To see her is to take a sudden chill. Cruella, Cruella de Vil. Clearing her look, the ice in her stare. Innocent children, you better beware. The world will search a wholesome place until Cruella, Cruella de Vil. All right, it's time for dessert, and dessert is television. Television is life. <laughs> uh, our TV uh, write, writing this week comes courtesy of Joel Keller. Hello, Joel. Hey, Neil, how you doing? I'm good. Good to talk to you. Uh, I don't think we've ever spoken in person before. That's what the best thing about this is that uh, this uh, podcast is that I actually get to talk to people who I've, I've worked with. Uh, Joel has written a couple couple pieces for us. It's been a while. Joel writes about TV and entertainment and other things for Decider, which, you know, it's where I uh, encountered his writing first. I used to write for Decider.com, as well as also written for the New York Times, Billboard, Vanity Fair, Playboy. You know, professional writer, writes for professional places, and uh, covers a lot of TV. And you wrote um, a uh, really interesting piece for us this week, which I actually... I'll admit, like this is how my this is my uh, an amazing look into my editorial process. Joel and I are friends on Facebook, and I saw him put something up saying, "Why are uh, Regis? Well, not Regis. Re- obviously, Regis Philbin is is, is not involved." But uh, yeah, Kelly he's Ripa, quite dead. Yeah, he's quite he's dead. Quite dead. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. Great Regis Philbin. But Kelly Ripa and and Ryan Seacrest, he's like, "Why are they sitting ten feet apart on the set when they're so obviously vaccinated?" And I was like, you know, that's actually. A good good uh, topic uh, for for a piece like, and and you wrote about how you, you felt like TV needs to get back to its pre-COVID normal that it's time for um, TV to stop uh, reflecting these sort of stop stop kind of cosplaying the pandemic. Exactly, exactly, and I always like it when my uh, Facebook whining translates into paid stories yeah. online. So that's that's where my whining comes. You know, into play. My complaining online comes into play. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. but 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 this is a legitimate complaint, right? There's like yeah. you know, and because you're you're um you mostly focus on um on late night and and daytime shows, right? Where, right. Where, where they're constant. You know, there's a lot. You know, there's there's a sort of a lot more daily production going on. Whereas you know, scripted shows tend to happen in a very sort of short pocket of time, couple months. But these shows are on every day, and you feel like they're being. Well, what are they doing? Like, why are we still? Why are we still? Ha- you know, playing like this. I, I don't. I don't quite get it because uh, because it, it doesn't make any sense when you're allowed to now. New Jersey, where I live, just uh, uh, rescinded their mask indoor masking mandate. For instance, right? What what courage it took to do that? What courage? So if you're allowed to wear masks at tar- if you're allowed to go to Target and Target says you you don't have to wear masks or inside a restaurant, why do Kelly and Ryan have to sit ten feet from each other anymore? 
I'm guessing they've been vaccinated. I'm guessing the whole staff's been vaccinated. Why not bring everything back to the way it was? You right. know, even if you don't bring in an audience, why why have to put on the show that everybody is is standing ten feet apart and trying to be safe from each other? Yeah. Uh, after I filed the article, uh, Kelly uh, uh, Ryan wasn't there the next day, and the Kelly's substitute co-host was uh, Mark Consuelos, who is her husband, and were they, they still sat ten feet apart? They still sat ten feet apart from each other. Right. Which do, do they sit ten feet apart from each other at, at home? Do they sleep I'm in not, separate beds? Yeah. Do they sleep? Uh, yeah. Uh, different ends of the mansion. I don't know, but yeah. it, it's it makes no sense to me. That shows that it's still it's it's now more of a theater than actually trying to be safe. Now, like I didn't understand. I don't understand why. Uh, John Oliver is still in his white void, you know, instead right. of in the studio now, whether he has an audience or not. I mean, um, and, and John Oliver has admitted that it's very tough to do remote production and that they have to tape a day before they used to tape in the studio because remote production is so complicated, yeah. which for a show like theirs is is a critical loss of time. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure why Seth Meyers isn't doing an audience. He finally brought guests in that weren't sitting six feet away from him, like the other day. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure why the View is still they're all still yelling at each other from their little from their little squares, Zoom-like squares. You know, I don't understand why this is still happening when other shows have brought in audiences, other shows have gone back into the studio and have proven that. It's safe to do so, given right. even if you uh, even if you still use COVID protocols. So well, I'm I, not- think there, I mean, I, I have a th- I think there's a couple things going on. Well, one, you know, these shows are very, uh, you know, they require a lot of union participation in order to make them happen. Right. And the unions right. um, are overprotective um, when it comes to COVID. I mean, which would have made sense a year ago, you know, when we didn't know anything and when, when, and the pandemic hadn't really run its course and when there weren't vaccines. Um, So you've got, and and that's the same nonsense you see with a lot of schools too, like where the the teachers unions are like overprotecting and overreaching. And also I feel like um, a lot of these shows that you mentioned, like especially the late night shows, they're, they're catering to a very, um, a very liberal audience, right? So you've got like people who are like who took COVID very seriously and took the protocols very seriously. And I think that I feel like the shows haven't quite caught up to the current reality yet. Well, and and I'm one of those people who I'm not a I'm sure. not a, a you know a, I'm still wearing masks outside even though I don't have to. I'm vaccinated. You know, it's it's really I may just still wear masks because I don't want to catch anybody else's colds. I don't know, but uh, you know, but hey man, that's up to you. But you're not. Yeah. But that's not really like, and that and that's fine. But that's not like behavior to necessarily model to the whole world. Exactly. And and what I what gets to me is the fact that these shows, you know, some of them are going back. Like Colbert's going back in a couple of weeks, and uh, uh, Fallon says he's going to do a full audience, vaccinate audience in a couple of weeks. So, you know, there are signs that that shows are going back, but shows that should be simpler to come back like John Oliver's show, they should have been back by now. I, I've yeah. been watching John Oliver from his white void now for the last two months, wondering why they're not back, why they're not back in the studio yet. And, and you're right. It could be the unions being overly protective, but um, 
it just feels to me that these shows are generally better when they're in their studios with a production team and better with an audience, even though there have been a couple, like Colbert and Oliver have adapted very well to not having an audience. They're better with an audience and they're better in their, in their studios. So I'm not sure why, the, and, and that's why it, it puzzles me as to why some of these shows haven't gone back yet. Well, yeah. you know, and then, you know, it didn't, it didn't help that Bill Maher came, went back and then yeah. quote-unquote got COVID, although he was he'd been completely asymptomatic, but he, you know, these PCR tests, and, you know, the people who were on TV shows, I mean, they're getting, they're getting their noses swabbed three times a day. God knows how many COVID tests they right. have to go through. So if you're constantly testing and constantly testing, you know, I mean, it may take forever. <laughs> it may take forever right. to, for Kelly and Ryan to sit next to each other again. Yeah, but, but see, that's that's the one. That's one of them. That and I think the view maybe. Those are two really absurd cases where it's like, yes. what? There's no need if they're everybody's fully vaccinated to have everybody sitting so far apart from each other. So yeah, it's it's it. It looks silly. It looks forced. It looks it looks. Yeah. Uh, awkward. Yeah. And the, other one uh, and meant, the, the other one you mentioned too in your piece is uh, inside the NBA, yeah, where, uh, yeah. where Shaq and and and, uh, and Kenny and Charles and Ernie are like they're like they they look like they're on the Star Trek, br- the Enterprise bridge. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen anything make Shaq look so small. Right. Uh, but that set does because you know it looks like they're they're all sitting. Think about it, they're all sitting six feet away from each other. So that means. I think Shaq's on one end and 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 Charles, Charles. and Barkley's on the other end, right? So that yeah. means Shaq and Charles are are um, six, six, 25 feet away from each other. Yeah, and that, uh, well, that that you know that's about how Barkley played defense when he was in the NBA. Appropriate, yeah, <laughs> but it's but still they have to yell at each other. They have to yell at each other from one side of the, the yeah. studio to another. It just it's it's awkward, and and there's no longer. And when it was and when we were in the height of this pandemic, and they wanted to shoot in the studio, that was fine. But they don't need to do that anymore. So right. why 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 not bring them all back together? Give to give them the smaller desk, and and you know, and not and not uh, pretend that that the situation hasn't changed. Right. And, you know, and, and I just found it interesting that you said this, because like you said, you're like a pretty COVID paranoid gaslit kind of guy when it comes to the pandemic, which is not an insult, but it's OK. <laughs> well, no, but it's like, you know, it's like you're very, you know, it's like you're scared. You know, you live in a state that was very, very had tight restrictions and you were took it very seriously. And you're st- and you're still saying, like, let's get back to normal. Right. I mean, right. Right. It's not like it's not like me who was going to the movies in May of 2020 and right, right. Be like social distancing is stupid, <laughs> you know. Of course, right, exactly. You know, of I mean, but but I, so I so I found it so I so I, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I, a great article and I appreciate the perspective and um, you know and it's a, it's a sign that eventually you know we're gonna we're by by the fall I think you know. Hopefully, we'll be able to put all this this ridiculous period of American entertainment behind us. Yeah, and and by the way, the other thing I do cite in the article are the uh, the shows that uh, with their stringent COVID the the scripted shows with yes. their silly COVID protocols, but also the all idea of two people walk up to each other in a scene wearing masks, strangers, and then they take the masks off to talk to each other. I'm like, what message is that sending? 
Right. So, and I, I never understood that. And I'm hoping that we'll get past all this when, when the new shows, when the shows start again in the fall. Right. And they'll just all pretend that, that it's over and we're back to something resembling normal. Because what they were showing before made no sense. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And let's not even talk about the pandemic era commercials. <laughs> Whoa. Well, we're all in these trying times. Yeah, in these trying times. Yeah, we're all in this together. Yeah. Right. Sure we are. Well, Joel, it was great to have you back uh, 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 in the Book and Film Globe camp. I hope uh, we can uh, we can do something else again real soon. And uh, and uh, and I appreciate it. And let's uh, let's um, mask off and have some fun. And so we come to the end of another Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I'd like to thank my guests, Maya Sinha, Amanda Fortini, Pablo Gallaga, Stephen Garrett, and Joel Keller. We're wrapping up this week, uh, per my discussion with Joel, with the Entertainment Tonight theme song. Look how, uh, look how close together Lisa Gibbons and that blonde guy are sitting. It's not very COVID safe, but then again, it was the late 80s, and we didn't know how naive we were. I hope you can join us next week. I will not be here. Sharon Vane will be hosting in my stead, but it will still be the same excellent program. Thanks for stopping in. We hope that you keep reading the website and keep on listening. Have a good one. I always value books and films and good TV, but now during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.